Welcome to On Air, a podcast discussion at the intersection of artificial intelligence and international relations, where we will discuss the development of IR theory, law, and practice in the age of AI. From Tokyo, Japan, welcome to the On Air podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lamont, and today I'm joined by Mark Owen Jones, the author of the recent book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East Deception, Disinformation, and Social Media. Mark is also Associate Professor of Middle East Studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar. Welcome to the On Air podcast, Mark. Thanks. It's great to be here. I think we have quite a substantial time difference, but we both look pretty fresh. Yes. Yes. Thank you for joining me here in the afternoon in Tokyo and early in the morning over in Qatar. And now for our listeners, of course, we've discussed the topic of digital authoritarianism in past seasons on this podcast, but our focus has mostly been on artificial intelligence enabled systems like facial recognition cameras and other forms of digital surveillance and spyware that have opened the door to mass surveillance on the part of both states and importantly, private firms as well. Now, today we're going to revisit these themes and we're delighted to have Mark here with us because we'll also be able to shed light on another aspect of digital authoritarianism, that of social media manipulation with a focus on disinformation. But before we get into this topic in more detail, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this murky world of online deception? Sure. So actually, I got interested in this perhaps from the world of journalism. So my background is journalism. And I remember one standout class that I took. This was giving, my, giving away my age a bit. Back in hmm. 2004 or five, I did a class on, it was, it was in my journalist course, but we studied the case of Stephen Glass. Now, I don't know if you remember him, but it was, he was a journalist for the New Republic. And this was at the time when the internet was also emerging. And Forbes Digital, who were relatively new at the time, discovered that Stephen Glass had been basically fabricating news hmm. stories and writing these in the New Republic. And it was a huge case. And they made a film about it called Shattered Glass. And I remember this sticking in my head. So I've always right. had this kind of interest in deception. And then when I started my PhD on Bahrain, I became very interested in, because I was studying social media, my PhD started in 2011 when the Arab uprising started. And it just so happened at the time, and I can talk more in more detail later, right. that I started to become very aware that social media was not the liberating force that everyone seemed to be claiming it to be, and that there was a lot of untoward activity going on Twitter and Facebook. So that really, those two things for me, seem like key moments in this journey towards this, uh, studying deception. Absolutely. And with regards to Bahrain, I recall that back in, I think it was like 2012, there was a documentary called Shouting in the Dark. And one of the things that really stuck with me in that documentary was how the Bahraini authorities were able to harness social media profiles to track down and locate and detain those who had been attending protests and also to attack those who are public figures who were associated with the protest movement. Would you consider this a critical moment in kind of the harnessing of digital tools to quash dissent? Absolutely. I think Bahrain is a really interesting case. Simply, One, it's very small, so it tends to get overlooked. Mm. And that's not necessarily for sinister purposes. It's when we consider the scale of the tragedies happening in the, the Middle East at the time, Bahrain was relatively small in terms of lives lost. It doesn't diminish it. Simply, I think it, it makes people sometimes overlook the case. So I'm glad you asked. In right. 2011, it was what, the Egyptian uprising was already underway. But I think what separates Bahrain from other countries is, as a Gulf country, it has extremely high digital penetration rates. So the majority of the population have access to the internet, which is not the case in places like Egypt, for example. Certainly, many people have one or two mobile phone subscriptions. And 
many people subscribe to social media sites. I think social media penetration in the Gulf is certainly the highest in the Arab region. So what that does is create a system where everyone and or most people are using these tools. So if you are to use those tools for nefarious purposes, you have access to a large number of the population. And I remember, you know, it was interesting because, as I said, I started my PhD in 2011 and the techno liberation paradigm was in ascendancy, the idea that technology could be used for purposes of liberation. But I noticed that suddenly people were talking online. There was proliferation of accounts. I was meeting people I'd not met before. Of course, I don't know the whole of Bahrain, even though I grew up there. And I became very aware of like unusual accounts getting in touch or people complaining to me of anonymous accounts getting in touch. Accounts would crop up suddenly sharing what looked like private social media photos of people by the Pearl Roundabout calling them traitors. These were getting heavily retweeted. I remember one day the government launched some sort of counter-revolutionary document. It was basically, people sign this if you're sick of protesters disrupting traffic. And then suddenly it had thousands and thousands of these online accounts signing it. And none of them looked particularly, I say real, quote unquote real. They all had anonymous profiles, pictures of the royal family shield as their profile. And then suddenly in the newspaper the next day, it was like loads of people have signed up to this thing condemning the protesters. And I was like, it really, I started to think, you know, it would make sense to use social media or digital technology as a, a sort of a appendage of the state apparatus. Because what I learned from political repression, having now studied that over the past 10 years, is that states will use what resources they have at their disposal, any tool possible to facilitate surveillance or repression. And now disinformation and deception are not new, of course. So it makes perfect sense that you would have these new technologies, co-op these new technologies for those purposes. So I began to see a lot of this. And I think Bahrain is an important case because the types of methods being used there, whether it was phishing using IP spy techniques or simple social engineering, for example, getting in touch with an anonymous account, contacting an activist saying, hey, I'm another activist. Maybe you could share this information. These kind of crude methods were also happening then. And it's an important thing to to mention, because obviously, if we talk about, say, authoritarian upgrading, people, I think, were a bit naive about the dangers of technology, because there was such an effusive narrative about its liberating potential. And there was people getting swept up in the kind of euphoria generally of the protests, they let their guard down. And so I think a lot of the tactics that we saw being used there in Bahrain, aren't necessarily the ones used today. But they showed us they were a real clear entry point into this murky world of digital deception. And this is really unsettling, being contacted by you know, these accounts that you, and you don't really know if they're real or they're not, and also how the, how people or activists are being approached on these digital platforms and followed and such. And, and one thing that really strikes me about what you're describing here is that, uh, and you also discussed this in your work, is that this so digital authoritarianism in practice today requires a ecosystem that includes a wide range of actors that go beyond the state. Right, this nexus of PR firms, consultancies, and authoritarian regimes that come together to make this possible because the regimes themselves would not necessarily have access to all of these tools. And I think one way you describe this is as a, as a disinformation supply chain. Yeah. How can this supply chain be unraveled, if at all? Yeah. It's an important question, just for the benefit of listeners, you highlighted it, but the disinformation or even deception supply chain usually is a customer, which might be the state or a state right. agency, and the service provider, which might be a private company in the West. And often the delivery systems, the services, the platforms include Facebook and Twitter or email or other things. But uh, it's very hard to unravel. So I think it's useful to give some examples 
the, the most obvious example, and I say obvious in the sense that it's the example perhaps with the most concrete evidence, which again alludes to the problems in, in, in answering the question, is we, SCL Social, this was the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, worked with the UAE Supreme Media Council during the Gulf crisis in 2017. And we know this because the documents that detail this relationship on the Foreign Agents Registration Act website, so the US Department of Justice, there's a law in the US called the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which requires companies engaged in services or what might be perceived as lobbying American companies to declare their interests and declare their contracts. And for many of the time, companies engaged in this kind of behavior do not do that or they try to avoid it. The FARA is not really a tightly regulated or rather applied law. But what it means is, in theory, that most American companies, if they're involved in this kind of activity, would have to register. So in this particular case, as the company working with the UAE Media Council also worked with a British PR firm based in Dubai. And, that pro- and the contracts uploaded to the website detailed what they did, which was to create social media accounts to promote particular narratives. In this case, it was to encourage a hashtag boycott Qatar and to share selective bits of media, right? So this is one example where we actually know the supply chain. We know that the UAC Free Media Council had a contract with SEL Social, who also were using Project Associates to engage in a astroturfing campaign. And we know this because of publicly uploaded documents. But other times we have to rely on whistleblowers, investigative reports, leaks. There's been a few incidences where British companies have been found to have been involved in in other nefarious activities. In South Africa, for example, Bell Pottinger, which was partly established by Lord Bell, again, British elite, who was the communications advisor to the Thatcher administration. He set up a company that was very active in the Middle East, but his company closed after it was found out that they were creating basically AstroTurf campaigns, fake accounts in South Africa in support of a group of guys called the Gupta brothers who were being accused of corruption. But what their fake accounts were doing was engaging in this incredibly polarizing narrative that accused anyone criticizing the Gupta brothers, their clients, Bell Pottinger's clients, of racism. And obviously, with South Africa's history of apartheid, it, it shows it. But this was a British company. In the case of the UAC Premier Council, it was a British company and an American company, all supplying what you could argue to be disinformation or deception services. So most of the time, these things are happening, Chris, and we don't know about But occasionally, we get a glimpse into the machine. And when we do it, it highlights, like I said, these supply chains or these assemblages. Right. It seems, and you've alluded to this already in your response, that there are certain states, particularly in the Middle East, that that have really become masters of harnessing this particular supply chain. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are two, and they pursue multifaceted goals with this. Also, it's interesting you've talked about advancing foreign policy goals, but also kind of domestic repression. And it seems that they have a wide set of tools that they rely on for these. Can you talk a little bit about these, a little bit more about these bot armies and advancing the foreign policy goals of states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE? Sure. Briefly, I describe or I define digital media power as the ability of a state to use digital resources, whether it's spyware or bot armies, to spread influence domestically, regionally, and internationally. And one of the reasons I mentioned UAE and Saudi is because I think the evidence would suggest that they are are using digital technology on these three levels, uh, more so than I would say any other state. So there's different techniques, obviously, for both foreign policy. It's foreign policy, a lot about, there's also an aspect of managing the narrative when it comes to, for example, a conflict or crisis. Obviously, foreign policy is complex. But for example, the Gulf crisis is an example when 
if for those who don't remember, in 2017, when it was activated, the whole pretext for the, the crisis was Saudi and the UAE and Egypt and Bahrain, to a lesser extent, accused Qatar or Qatar's emir of essentially undermining the Riyadh agreement and supporting Iran and terrorism. And then the Qataris alleged that their news sites had been hacked to create the illusion that this quote happened. And then at the same time, we saw huge cyber armies promoting narratives from the blockading countries from Saudi, Qatar, UAE and Bahrain. And so what was interesting about this, it was, I would suppose, in any conflict situation, whether it's domestic or regional, international, in this case, it was regional and to an extent international, it's about managing a narrative, projecting a narrative. And you could argue that an aspect of digital diplomacy is about using digital resources to project and influence the public sphere so that they are more amenable and conducive to, to the actions that you're taking in that sphere. And so if you looked, for example, at the word Qatar on social media, during that time, you would find that the majority of the mentions of that word were produced or retweeted by bot accounts and accounts supporting the narrative of the UAE. So in this context, you, I would say that it was clear in this case, it was probably Saudi and UAE bot armies who were in the, or leading this charge, had managed to dominate the narrative around the crisis on social media. So anyone basically trying to find information about the crisis on social media would be, would be exposed predominantly to a narrative that favored Saudi and the UAE. And this, it's always, it's, it can be unclear where these things lead. On the basic level, you're just looking at Twitter and if you're a journalist or a citizen, you're like, wow, man, these 13 demands made of Qatar are pretty intense. But at the same time, you'd have fake trends about, for example, the e economic problems in the target country, in this case, Qatar. You'd have thousands of fake accounts promoting a narrative that, for example, the ministry had cut funds to, to, to its civil servants in order to demoralize that country or portray the country economic situation in a negative light. And then that would be picked up, say, by BBC Monitoring. This happened. So BBC Monitoring is just a service that monitors social media trends right. to try and keep a finger on the pulse of the region, like Vox Pops. And then they would put that on their website saying, oh, people are mentioning this trend about Qatar cutting these salaries. But that never happened. But at the same time, it's a very good example of, for example, an economic, an attempt to frame the blockade as having a, a strong economic effect on Qatar, which could, for example, decrease investor confidence. And then you tie this in with other things that we now know to have happened, for example, a bank in Luxembourg trying to undermine the Qatari currency, right? So these narratives, when it comes to things like economic attacks or finance in the international sphere, narratives, perceptions all matter. They can have a deleterious impact on an economy. And that could, for example, in this case, if it was successful, force the target country to come to the negotiating table and maybe be less combative and more likely to submit to the demands of the other country. So this war on narratives is really where I think this deception and disinformation shine. That's just one example. We also know that lots of resources were poured into lobbyist firms in the US and the UK to help engage with these narratives. So there's another aspect to it on the international level. I hope that in some ways answers right. that question. No, absolutely. I, I try to give examples. One thing that really comes to mind here that, that I've thought about and that thought about in the past is trying to get information, for example, about Libya. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Disseminating Good information about Libya on social media and knowing what's real and what's not. And then kind of the quick response to anything that is written about Libya and these, as you describe, these kind of these accounts that that exist to to just really guide public opinion in a different direction. Also, one might think about kind of like even politics in, in, in a country like Tunisia, where there's been a significant democratic backsliding in framing the opposition party, Nahda. You write about that in your book also in particular how these campaigns can be effective in altering how 
political actors are perceived in countries where states are pursuing their interests. So this is absolutely fascinating, but also it's very alarming as we begin to look in and unpack these, what you describe as kind of these deception superpowers, right? These tools are potentially very seductive. And one thing that I wanted to ask you about was also if we look at silences in kind of the digital realm and how these mm -hmm. tools are effective in silencing domestic political opponents. You alluded to it a little bit in, in talking about how kind of private social media profiles are being circulated or were being circulated in Bahrain, but also in the context of Jamal Khashoggi and a very high profile killing at a diplomatic facility. How did that reverberate in the digital realm? Yeah, this is a, a, another key aspect of it is that once you have a social media account or even a mobile phone and you have a permanent communication device with you or a platform, basically you become a vector for attacks. People can get in touch with you whenever they want if you have a public profile. And often if you're an activist or a journalist or a civil society actor, that inevitably means this there, inevitably. Because if you have a mildly controversial opinion, with an, especially with an authoritarian context, you will get attacked. It's right. guaranteed. And I think what we saw with Jamal Khashoggi in particular was like leading up to his attack was constant abuse on social media, constant attacks. And this ranges from just swear words and insults to death threats. I remember one of the most poignant aspects of this was that he was complaining to a friend shortly before he was murdered that he would sometimes end the day in tears as a result of these campaigns. And I've worked on many campaigns in the regions, worked on analyzing campaigns in the region of people who are just ruthlessly hounded and harassed to the extent either it forces them to go offline or to stop tweeting or to stop engaging in activism or distracts them. I think this is interesting about the mechanisms of intimidation online. They can distract you. They can psychologically harm you. They can make you fear for your life. All these are designed to distract or deter that person from engaging in their core function, whether that's criticism, journalism, and whatnot. And it happens all the time. And I think what's interesting about this is that it, it has, you mentioned Khashoggi in particular, and that I think more than anything recently had a, an overall chilling effect on the public sphere. If it wasn't already chilled, which I don't know why chilled, silenced, right. not relaxed, because obviously we've seen counter-revolution since 2011. And there's been a cumulative silencing, both through incarceration, but also intimidation. And I think Khashoggi's killing really made it clear that dissent in the region would not be tolerated online. There's been a number of other cases that have hammered this home. Just for example, a few months ago, a Saudi student was sentenced to about 36 years in prison for tweeting something critical of the regime. And this leads a vacuum. So the silencing of critical voices leads a vacuum. So the digital public sphere then becomes a place in which it's not an accurate reflection of public criticism of regimes because those who are engaging criticism often are targeted in silence. And there's an efficiency to this because if you target key figures like Khashoggi, you send the message, right? You don't need to target everyone. And I would say that this is one of the things I've noticed is that there has been a general decrease in criticism. And then because of that, a vacuum that is filled with pro-government voices or voices supportive of the regime. And so what you're seeing on digital media is not an accurate reflection of public opinion. It's a co-opted space, I define it as. It's a space that's managed to be successfully co-opted by authority and actors. Obviously, I'm talking in absolutes. I don't necessarily mean to make it sound right. like that simple because it's also a penetrated space. Other voices can get into it. But in particular in Arabic, where you have countries who have 
in the Gulf in particular, who have high digital penetration rates, they can dominate the Arabic public sphere on social media by virtue of their wealth, their technological penetration, and their reach. And I think this narrative, this Gulf narrative, is one of the dominant ones you see online. You mentioned Tunisia. Tunisia right. is a good example. If you looked for anything to do with Tunisia during the auto coup of Qais Saeed, and right. then you would notice that the Gulf narrative was dominant. This was like, this is a good, this coup is good, it's not a coup. It's, it's a consolidation of power to, 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 at the detriment of the Muslim Brotherhood, and we don't right. like the Muslim Brotherhood, so this is good. That's the narrative you would have seen. It, that, it has yeah. knock-on impacts in kind of perceptions of what's going on, what's happening in Tunisia, and perhaps also frames how other states are beginning to perceive events as well. This is all very alarming, and it resonates here in, in Japan, as well as we recently had, there was a student who went back to Hong Kong who was detained mm. for the contents of their social media posts that they made while studying here in, in this country. And this is absolutely chilling. And one thing that's worrying, if this is not enough, is the fast-paced developments in emerging technologies like generative artificial intelligence, but also increasing computing power. Seems like th these technologies have the potential to supercharge kind of these bots or these flies that you've already described in your book. Where do you see the future of digital authoritarianism going? What is worrying you the most about the direction of travel? I feel if I say the word, there's going to be like lights flashing and a buzzing word right. of the day. Uh -huh. AI. No, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm exaggerating slightly. I think we're talking a lot about generative AI now because ChatGPT's come out. Actually, in my book, which came out before the whole ChatGPT was launched, I right. mentioned ChatGPT or GPT-3, which was it's, an ex it's a concern I explicitly expressed at the time right. because I would say there's been like an interesting loop, right? There was a point where bots were really utilized a lot maybe from mm. 2012 to 15, because social media companies weren't great at detecting them. Then they became relatively easy to detect, and they became the crude, ah, oh, no one's really going to give a damn about bots because they're easy to detect and filter out because they're automated. But now, the, the role of, I think, artificial intelligence in being able to create realistic sounding content at scale and at speed right. is, is something that's really significant because we already have the problem with the social media platforms themselves. Now, these are the delivery systems, right? right. So there's no social media platform. Something like ChatGPT3 bots wouldn't necessarily be a big issue. They'd be an issue in other realms. But the platforms right. that in which they deliver the information are key. The problem with the platforms, therefore, is that they still do not have a handle on the forms of manipulation or stopping, for example, account creation by bad actors. And they use usually AI systems to try and combat this. But the problem is, these AI systems are, are never adequate to stop the kind of adversarial attempts to try and manipulate them. And what I've seen with Twitter, for example, is so much rhetoric over the past 10 years, even before Musk, about doing a great job to combat this information. It's never been that great. And frankly, I'm actually quite alarmed at their ability to not detect what I would say are low-hanging fruit. And I think under, for example, Musk, ownership matters too. And I think as, for example, Facebook might struggle more with revenue, one has to, and, and Elon Musk is a good example of what happens when they're worried about bottom line, is that they become a bit more permissive in mm. allowing people to use their platforms because these platforms generate revenue from user subscriptions. So what we've seen under Musk, for example, is what looks like a complete abandonment of attempts to guard the platform from manipulation because firstly, he's fired a lot of people who would previously have done that. He's also using the narratives of liberal, liberalism and free speech to basically 
get out of any attempts to try and curtail what might be hate speech and under the guise of this is just freedom of speech. And so what this means is a platform essentially that anyone can come to. And he's said quite a few times, look, we've got more new user numbers. There's no way to know whether those user numbers are real people. And also now he's algorithmically privileging anonymous accounts. I just looked at the other week, I found a, a kind of network of fake accounts who are tweeting climate disinformation, again, worrying. And three of those accounts used stolen photos. One was using AI generated images, but they were all verified, right? Wow. So verified, <laughs> because verification now is not an identity-based um, verification as it was. You eight pay dollars or whatever. It's monetized verification. And not only that, verification, unlike before, is algorithmically privileges your content. So what this means, it means bad actors can simply pay for a device that gives them the illusion of credibility and algorithmically privileges their content. Right. right. So that combined with, for example, generative AI, the ability to create propaganda at scale, even without particular language skills, is really bad. And again, I say language skills because you could hire cheap labor in a particular country and have an, a setup with, where everyone has 20 accounts and one mobile phone, and they don't necessarily have to be great at speaking English or Spanish or Arabic to be able to create perfectly grammatically coherent constructions and propaganda. And again, it's that kind of Previously, the bad grammar or whatever would be a way of indicating that something was maybe a dodgy account. But yeah, in short, I think AI poses new problems, but it's not just AI. We have to remember that the political, social, and economic, political economy, I suppose, foundations of a lot of the supply chains or the ecosystem is also important in creating the problem. So, the, for example, the sort of neoliberal ethos, I think, of social media companies, which is profit and expansion, has not gone away. That is the underlying, I think, issue here. And that will be exploited. Absolutely. And it seems that that gets us back to that kind of the earlier question about how to unravel these deception supply chains, that there is a confluence of interest from the kind of the Elon Musks of the world who want to maximize their revenue and the unscrupulous actors who are happy to help them maximize their revenue through the manipulation of their contents and their sites. And both sides are profiting from this unfortunately attractive arrangement for the two. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. I could spend a lot more time yeah. <laughs> asking you questions about each of these topics that we've just been able to talk a little bit about today. And I really look forward to reading your future work and also to our listeners. Be sure if you haven't already, pick up Mark's book on digital authoritarianism. It's published by Oxford University Press and Hearst Publishers. And as always, if you like the show, we invite you to subscribe and leave us a comment. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join us for the next episode for a discussion at the intersection of AI and IR theory, law, and practice. Until then, stay human. Stay human.